Testing, testing. Hey, there we go. Okay, let me start again. Good morning. Um, it is great to be here. Second time in Nelson, second time in BC. Beautiful. Uh, as I was saying, today feels like a real gift to myself and my family. My wife and kids are very sad that they couldn't come out with me. But my wife has kind of a teaching gig at a university where we're from in Hamilton that she couldn't get out of early in the week. But I still wanted to introduce you to them because they are awesome. So here's our family. And this is pretty much every day for us. It's idyllic. It's beautiful. We look the, no, no. This is like, this is literally a snapshot moment in the life of chaos. Um, this is our, our family. We live uh, in a beautiful little spot called Westdale in Hamilton. And this is my wife, Heather. Uh, she has her PhD. So it's really Dr. and Mr. Strong, and I love throwing that around when I go to dinner parties. Uh, she's wonderful and obviously uh, the love of my life, and I just wouldn't be where I am without her, and she's a real gift from God to me. Uh, these are our four kids, and uh, I've already gotten, I can read it on people's faces. I've gotten to the point now where when I tell people I have four kids, or when they find out that I have four kids, there's that m- moment where their brain kind of freezes a little bit. Oh, four, four kids. Yeah. That's one way to live your life, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it is full of energy. And I'm, I'm an only child. So to go from just me and my home space being such that I can control it, it's quiet, I can adapt the environment to suit my needs, to now six people in our home, four of which are just these bundles of joy and energy, it is exhausting, but it is glorious and it is so good. Our, in front there, our youngest is Avery. She's about 18 months. Uh, crouching beside her is Lauren. She's our oldest. She just turned 10. And then uh, that's my only son, Braden. He's three. And, and this is Kara uh, over top of Braden. Uh, she's six. Um, it's funny because our kids now are starting to realize that we're not like other families around us because of our size. And the other day we were talking about that and we, and we were, uh, one of our, I think it was Lauren who was remarking, wow, it's really noisy at the breakfast table and there's a lot going on. And I think Lauren kind of said, did you want to have as many kids as, as we have. And we are like, oh, totally. And we were like cleaning up the dishes and I was <clears throat> over by the sink. And, um, and Kara was still sitting at the table finishing her breakfast. And, uh, you know, just kind of the white noise of the morning was happening. And all of a sudden she turned to me and from across the room she said, Daddy, how do you, how do you stop having kids? <laughs> and my wife is in the other room changing Avery's diaper and all I hear her do is laugh. And I know she's not going to help me out at all. I, I, am, I am totally alone in this. And I'm, doing, you know, I'm doing the dishes at the sink, right? And I'm like, oh, man. It's that moment when you realize the only thing more potentially awkward than talking to your kids about how babies are made is how you prevent them from being made. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> and I, I said, uh, Kara, what do you mean? And she said, well, like when you have all the kids that you want, how does... How do you put an end to it? That's what she said. <laughs> and, uh, I, I mean, I probably only paused for about six seconds, but it was like the longest six, six seconds of my life. But she saved me because she's not necessarily at the most patient developmental stage right now. So she was, I think she was really asking a rhetorical question. So I was kind of like, oh, well, it's... Uh, and she's like, do you just say, like, God, stop! That, <laughs> that's, and I said, yeah, that is pretty much how it works. <laughs> that's, that is it. You got it. You got it. This morning, we're going to be looking at a miracle of Jesus. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 2. John's one of the Gospels. First four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell the stories and teachings and life of Jesus. 
If you have an electronic device, you can fire that up and, and find that too. A uh, little bit of a preamble before I, we dive into the text though. Uh, the centerpiece of Jesus' teaching is this concept called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That phrase gets used interchangeably. It's, it's a Jewish catchphrase that has as it, at its heart this idea that the kingdom of God is wherever God's authority and power is honored and obeyed. And the kingdom of God breaks into the other competing kingdoms of this world and overwhelms it with mercy, love, and grace. And when you operate within the kingdom of God, you're operating under the rule and reign of God, and life is experienced the way God intended it, redeemed, restored, fundamentally good. Um, and if you're talking about a kingdom, then you have to talk about a king. Every kingdom has a king. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, each in different ways, been from different angles, they're presenting Jesus to us as a king. They're saying, this is the true king. There are other kings in the world. There's other kings in human history. But this is the king of kings. This is the capital L, Lord of lords. This is who shows us what is right and true and reveals the very nature of reality to us. And these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they compel us, they push us to confront this king and to say everybody needs to see who this king is and wrestle with his message because it is unlike any king that has come before or since. And it's this call to step into this kingdom of God mission in the world. What is that mission? It's to redeem creation from the power of sin and death. It's to rescue, it's to restore what has been lost because of the power of sin and death. We read in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus goes around through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus both proclaimed with words, so he tells people about God and his kingdom, but he also proclaims through miracles and parables. He, he shows and tells what this kingdom looks like and what it means to step into this kingdom. And that was such good news in a first century context where the only kingdoms that existed was the empire of Caesar. And that was an empire that was built on oppression and exploitation, dehumanization. It was very anti-God and anti-life and anti-human on a lot of levels. And so everything that Jesus said and did kind of unpacks and plays with this idea of what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? What does it mean to be a Christian, a follower of this king in this new kingdom? And what Jesus does is at the end of his time on earth, he empowers his followers who are called disciples. That's kind of a Bible word that means people who are trying to pattern their life off of his life. They were looking to imitate him because they thought that is the way life is supposed to be lived. That is the way. That is the truth. That is the life. But it's not an idea. It's a person. So I want to learn to imitate and mimic him. I want to have a heart like him and a mind like him and an imagination like him. And he empowered his followers through his spirit to continue that mission. He gives them his Holy Spirit that's poured out at Pentecost. It's power from on high to live this life. Because you can't live this life just kind of in your own willpower. Being a Christian is about a supernaturally empowered life. You can't just step into the way of Jesus. You have to do it in and through his spirit. And then in that power... God says, I want you to go into the world, into all the different spheres of your life, in your families, in your communities, in your workplaces, uh, in your studies, and I want you to bring the glory and goodness and hope and love of Jesus to bear on a world that is overwhelmed by darkness, suffering, um, destruction, and hopelessness. And Jesus says, really the two focal points of that is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a great commandment. And then he said, the great commission, I want you to go into all the world. And I want you to baptize people. And I want you to teach them to be disciples. 
not just people who have ideas about God and show up to a service every Sunday, but people who are learning to live every day of their life as if it was Jesus living through them and saying, I want to learn what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom in every part of my life. So if you're a Christian in this room, born again by the Spirit of God, that is the calling and mission that's on your life. That's a big calling and mission. It sometimes can seem very overwhelming, and the natural question becomes, how do you respond to that kind of invitation? How do you, that's pretty, it's exciting, but it's also very daunting. What does it look like to step into that vision? What does it look like to live into that truth and into that opportunity? And this is where Jesus' miracles are really, really cool to unpack and study because they give us a lot of answers to that question of what it means to live into God's kingdom, what it means to follow him as king. Because Jesus' miracles display, they show us, and they proclaim, they tell us what life with this king is going to look like and what we can expect to happen in us and through us if we follow Jesus faithfully. And so this morning in John chapter 2, we're going to look at a fairly famous miracle of Jesus's. He, it's the turning of water into wine at a wedding at a place called Cana. Uh, I'm teaching on this for a few reasons. Number one, it's become deeply meaningful to me on a number of levels, and that you, we might discover that as we go through it, but also because it's one of these miracles that offers tremendous insight into who this king is and what his kingdom is look, what his kingdom's going to look like and how different it's going to look like from the other competing kingdoms that vie for our attention, that vie for our allegiance, that call out to us and say, give us your life. Bow to this king. This is the way to the good life. Now, turning water into wine doesn't necessarily feel like this huge, life-altering miracle. If we're honest, let's just be honest for a moment and say, If you stack this up against some of Jesus' other miracles, it's just not as overwhelming, right? I mean, Jesus raises people from the dead. Jesus shuts down storms by simply speaking to them. Jesus walks on water. Jesus touches people who have no brain signals from their optic nerve to their brain, and he heals them and he brings vision. Jesus does things that are extraordinary and that would make our jaw drop to the floor if we were to see it. Turning water into wine is good. It's good, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. But it kind of just feels kind of cool. It's like a party trick, right? It's like David Blaine, street magician. Someone captures it on YouTube. It goes viral and everyone sees it. It's 35 million views. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. How do you do it? No one knows. Okay. But you forget about it a month later. And yet verse 11, if you look at verse 11, it says this was the miracle where Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. They've been following him to this point. This is the miracle where they say, I'm giving you everything, Jesus. I'm all in for you. And I read that and I'm like, this miracle? This is the one. This is the one that solidifies their commitment to follow this king? It's, a, it's definitely a miracle, but I don't know. It just doesn't, it seemed like this would have been like, okay, water into wine, that's good. Let's see what else you got, Jesus. We'll see, you know. But this is it. And what, this is what I've learned. Whenever you come across a scripture where Jesus does something or says something and people react really strongly to it, right? They either want to kill Jesus or they want to worship him. But 
but my reaction in reading it is just kind of like, oh, that's neat, yeah. I've learned I'm probably missing something, so I need to do a little bit more digging because at the end of this, all the disciples see this miracle play out and they're like, I, I'm, I'm totally in. Whatever, wherever this guy goes, whatever he says, I'm going to do it. And I think this miracle is a really good case in point where we can brush through it really quickly and miss the impact of it. Because at first, it doesn't strike us as anything overly spectacular. And yet, well, I, I think a lot of the fault of that lies in that we haven't been able to understand how John presents Jesus to us. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, I want to just talk for a moment about how John presents Jesus to us. Now, before I do that, i got to kind of acknowledge, I know there's people here who are kind of like, oh my goodness, when's he going to get to the Bible? Just start going into the text already. And I get that. I'm a big Bible guy. I believe in diving into the text. But I also believe that the Gospels are kind of like sonatas. They're like long orchestral pieces. And if you want to understand 5 minutes and 32 seconds to 5 minutes and 55 seconds, what's happening here? You can just dive into that right away. But it's a little bit more helpful if you see the whole sonata play out. If you keep the whole sonata in view, what's the entire arc of what's happening here? Oh, that, that helps me appreciate what's happening at that five-minute mark even more. And so that's kind of what I want to do. So if you think about John's gospel, do you ever notice that John's gospel is a little bit different than the other gospels? It's a, it's a little bit weirder. It's just strange. Um, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were a family uh, John would be the red-headed stepchild. And I make that joke because I was once a red-headed stepchild. So no offense to anybody who was actually a red-headed stepchild. That was me. I'm talking about myself. I've, I've been in your shoes. Right? I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can kind of tell from the, the, they're from the same family. They use the same language. They cover a lot of the same stories. Uh, they cover a lot of the same ground as Jesus. But John just includes, he's just different. And no one really knows what to do with him. It doesn't, it doesn't quite feel like he fits into the gospel family. His gospel reads a lot more mystically. He includes a lot of sayings of Jesus that just aren't obvious what the meaning is. They're strange. He includes a lot of miracles of Jesus, which are strange. He includes a lot of encounters with Jesus that people had that are weird and often doesn't necessarily immediately give us resolution. They're just here, this strange thing happened with Jesus once, and we're left to unpack it. And he arranges all these events in Jesus' life, kind of like a puzzle. And what he wants you to do as you you move through his gospel, he wants you to pick up these pieces, these little pictures, weird, strange pictures of Jesus. And by the end of the gospel, you're going to put them together and you're going to have this picture of Jesus that is glorious and it's beautiful and it's strange, but it's strangely attractive. And you're kind of like, who is this person? This is the Son of God. We're not just dealing with another religious teacher here. And John wants this gospel to build into something that gives you a beautiful, attractive, powerful, life-transforming picture of Jesus. And John highlights the fact, I don't know if you you caught this, he doesn't just say this was a miracle. He says in verse 11, this was a miraculous sign. And that's really important because John is saying this is something that points beyond itself. Jesus is doing something here which is giving us a preview of something bigger coming down the pipe. It's kind of like if you were to go to a movie and you see the movie trailers. The trailer is like a sign. It's saying, this movie's coming out, you know, fall 2015. 
And it shows you enough that you're like, I totally want to see that movie. I'm saving the date. That looks awesome. It doesn't tell you everything, but it points enough to it that you're like, ooh, I'm hungry for that. I, I, yeah, I, 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 want, I want to see that. And John says, this miracle is kind of like a trailer for a bigger coming attraction. And it's a coming attraction that you do not want to miss out on. Okay, so now we're going to go into the text. John chapter 2, I'm just going to read through it and then unpack some of what I see there. So let's uh, all read it and invite you to follow along. I think Mark's going to have it on the screen as well. John 2 chapter, uh, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, and he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The context of this passage is a pretty emotionally charged one. It's a wedding, the entire community is there, and someone realizes that the wine, which was supposed to last for multiple days of this celebration, has run out. And so, when the wine is gone, when it's run out, Jesus uh, Jesus' mother approaches him and, sa- and, and, and informs him, they have no more wine. And I think this is a context that all of us can relate to. We should be able to relate to it right away. Just, to, just by me asking you this question, when is the last time the wine has run out on your life? When is the last time things were going great? Life was a party. It was awesome. There was forward momentum. There was progress in all these areas. And then something happened, and you didn't see it coming. You were blindsided by it. Something overtook your life or something was taken away. There was an interference and you are left feeling gutted. And all of a sudden, all the celebration, all the joy, all the forward momentum comes screeching to a halt. When I was 20, about two months after I had met Heather and started dating her, um, I began to lose vision in this eye because of a genetic condition I had inherited through my mother. That was problematic enough. About 30 days later, I began losing vision in this eye. So I had to drop out of school, a school where I was in my third year. I was learning. I was growing. I just met this beautiful young woman who, even at that point, I was um, suspicious. This might be the person I would choose to marry. All my friends were there. My life was there. And within the span of about six weeks, I went from life is great to I was back home by myself in Kingston, living in my father's basement, no friends, no family around, stripped of everything that had been good about my life to that point. Now, maybe it's not a health issue for you, um, but there are lots of things that can hit us out of nowhere. There's lots of ways that the, the rug 
can be pulled out from under us. For some of us, it might be something as simple as 2014 was hard and we've made resolutions for 2015 and we're serious about them. And we're not even at the end of January and the wine's run out on those aspirations. And you're already struggling with the frustration of, am I ever actually going to see change in this area of my life? I want to see it, but I couldn't even make it a month. Maybe for you it's family issues. Maybe the wine has run out on a particular relationship. Maybe the boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or someone within your family. Maybe there's been a, a rift. Something's happened with a friendship. And all this forward momentum, all this goodness, all the party of life has just stopped. Maybe the wine has run out in your workplace or at school. It just feels uninspired and it just feels dry and it feels like it's not going anywhere. Maybe the wine has run out in your relationship with God where you're not exactly sure where it happened, but somewhere along the line, things just kind of got cold with God and got distant and there's no more progress. And you remember times of intimacy and closeness and connection with God, but they feel like a lifetime ago. I mean, that just feels like another, that, that feels like the distant, distant past. What are we supposed to do when the wine runs out in our lives? Because it's going to happen. What are we supposed to do with it? This miracle invites us into a really important answer, and that is you go to Jesus. When the wine runs out, make, sure, make your first stop going to Jesus. And that's so important in a world where so many alternatives to dealing with the wine running out are held out to us. There's all kinds of ways that people try and self-medicate right? When the wine runs out. You can find ways to numb yourself through drugs and alcohol, um, through artificial partying and just kind of like filling your life with artificial noise, media, consumption, buying stuff, addictive behaviors, maybe busyness. Some people collapse into depression or self-pity. And this story is grounded in this, this picture of this tremendous loss, this, you know, this couple's on the precipice of disaster. Running out of wine is a pretty big social faux pas in the first century. And Mary has the good sense to, instead of problem solve, go to Jesus and just let him know what's going on. And I think that's important because, yes, in the grand scheme of things, running out of wine isn't life or death. It's not like the fate of the world hangs in the balance. But that's important, too, because it shows us that Jesus cares about these, these times in our life. It shows us that even in situations that might even just bring social shame and embarrassment, God cares and God wants to intervene. Especially when the loss or the hurt is grounded in some kind of shame. And so when the wine runs out, go to Jesus, even if it's awkward, even if it feels like, I don't know if this is a big thing, don't retreat to these other measures. Go to Jesus 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Mary goes to Jesus and he says, I don't really see how this involves me. Uh, my hour has not yet come. And she turns to the servants in verse 5. Is it on there? Let me see here. And, she's, uh, and she says to them, do whatever he tells you, which is probably the best tweetable summation of discipleship you can find. Just do whatever Jesus tells you. And watch what happens when the servants take that command seriously. Because they could have been like, who's Jesus? He's neither the bride, he's not the groom, he's not the master of the banquet. I don't recognize his authority. Thanks, but no thanks. But they listen, and they do it. Nearby stood 
six stone watering jars, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. This is John at his best. John is saying, oh, watch what Jesus does here. This is so cool. This is so weird. It's so subversive. These jars are the things that you came into and you would wash your hands. So it's kind of like standing sink water. And they were um, there to remind God's people, especially the fiercely, strictly Torah-observant Jews, that God is pure and, and all the flux and flow of life and moving into and out of different spaces, we're called to pursue purity and to be cleansed from our sin. And God offers us a way to do that through sacrificial offerings. So you wash your hands and you remember that and you give thanks to God for that. And we know the story. We know that Jesus is, Jesus is eventually going to take all the water that are in these washing tubs and he's going to turn it into wine. And that's so cool because that's like this little clue that John is, wants to hint at that, you know what? Jesus can do so, more, so much more than just cleanse you from your sin. That's what washing does, right? Washing gets the dirt off. Jesus can do more than that. Jesus offers you more than just purification, more than just cleanliness. He offers you transformation. What Jesus touches will take ordinary things like dirty water and not make it clean water. That would be a miracle. He's going to make it wine. He's going to do something transformative through it. It's a sign. Be ready because if you follow this king into this kingdom, you're going to see ordinary things in your life get turned and transformed into something extraordinary. Jesus doesn't just offer us salvation from the power and penalty of sin. He offers us salvation into an entirely new way of living, a new identity, a new king and a new kingdom. So, uh, what happens? Verse 7, Jesus says to the servants, fill the water jars. So they filled them to the brim, and he told them, now I want you to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. I am not sure we can understand how challenging that instruction is. The servants are the employees of the master of the banquet. I want you to go to the standing sink water. That stuff, yeah. Um, I want you to fill it all the way up to the brim. And then I want you to dip your ladle in it. And I want you to put it in a wine goblet. And you're going to take that to the master of the banquet. That doesn't make any sense. Nothing about that request makes sense. That, that, to the servant, that is vocational suicide. How is this even possibly remotely going to solve this problem that we have? And when I thought about that, I thought, here's a servant in this position that is so awkward and so weird. He's been commanded, do whatever Jesus tells you. Okay, he's a wise rabbi, must know what he's doing. Fill up the dirty water, bring it to the head guy, full stop. What? <laughs> and I thought, but how many times in my life do I buckle when Jesus says something and I think, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't get how that's going to solve. Love my enemies. Do good to those who want to harm me. Love and bless the poor. Invite, when I throw a party, and uh, invite those who can't repay me. How, how's that going to fix it? What's that going to do? I don't get it. And then I realize what I do in my own life is I only... Um, the temptation is, maybe not only, but the temptation is I'll only obey Jesus in the commands that make sense to me. Oh, I see where you're going with this, Jesus. Of course I will obey you because I get it. But what do I do when Jesus calls me to something that doesn't make sense when I can't connect the dots? Am I still willing to do whatever he asks me? Or do I say, uh... 
So the selective obedience can be a temptation. And these servants become these great role models of people who are like, I don't see how this is going to help at all. But on some level, in this moment of clarity and faith, they trust Jesus. But that was not easy to do. And as we're going to see, there's this special blessing that awaits those who actually do whatever Jesus says, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it seems like social, emotional, vocational, economic, academic suicide, when you do whatever Jesus asks, something beautiful happens. And it's important to note that as the servant goes to collect this water, um, reflect on the fact that he, obe- he obeys Jesus all the way through, right? Maybe he's thinking, okay, when I get over here, something's going to happen. Here's the cup. I fill it up. Yep, it's dirty water. Okay, you know, this, this walk across the room is the longest two-minute walk to that master of the banquet, right? No one else in the party knows they've run out. Not even the master of the banquet yet. He doesn't know. So I'm just going to hand this cup to this guy and be like, this is all we have left. Right? So that servant is walking toward the master of the banquet. The song in his heart is, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to be fired summarily. But the master takes the cup and he drinks it. He's like, this is the best wine. When did the miracle happen? When did the miracle happen? The text doesn't tell us. Sometime between the servant obeying Jesus and coming all the way back and handing it to the master of the banquet, somewhere in there it happened, but we don't know where. Wouldn't it have been tragic if the servant would have started to obey Jesus? And on the way back, his doubts would have got the better of him, and he would have said, you know what? This is insane. This is not going to work. I'm dumping the cup. I'm saving my job. And I'm just going to pretend like nothing's happened. And when people ask me questions, I'm just going to say, there's a problem. Jesus offered a solution, which wasn't a solution, and I'm just trying to do my job. But he doesn't. He obeys Jesus all the way through. Can I trust Jesus even when it feels like when, when I'm obeying him, I'm not seeing any results? Am I still going to obey him? Or is my obedience contingent on seeing results and seeing immediate results? Because these guys obey. They continue to obey even when it isn't working. And look at the result. The wedding is saved right? The bride gets the the wine, the bridegroom gets the glory, or sorry, the bridegroom um, gets the compliments, Jesus gets glorified. The party is supplied with 800, or sorry, 150 extra gallons of wine. That's 800 bottles of wine. That's about everybody in this room taking home two huge bagfuls of wine, but not just cheap stuff, right? Like great wine. And John's like, when God's kingdom breaks forth, it does so in ways that show that God is opulent and extravagant in how he wants to bless his people. And so the master of the banquet, verse uh, 9. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it, come f- where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And I love that wine, that the servants knew. I'd never picked up on this about the miracle before, that some people went to this wedding and left four or five days later and were completely oblivious to the fact that a miracle had happened. Not everybody saw it. Not everybody knew. A very small circle of people knew, but the servants knew. The people who had obeyed Jesus. The people who had listened and trusted and said, this sounds crazy, but I'm going to do it. The power of God's kingdom often breaks into our lives secretly and silently, and it starts at the level of the servant. That's why Jesus says, I want you to be a servant. 
in every sphere of life because servants get the front row seat to the great things that God is doing. And this miracle teaches me that when I obey Jesus and when I adopt a servanthood posture and, and try and push that through to every area of my life, all of my spheres of responsibility, I'm going to get a first row ticket. But if I go through my life as a Christian with a sense of entitlement and what has God done for me lately and showing up to stuff and just assuming God's going to drop stuff in my lap, I'm going to be going to and from places and I, won't, I will never have seen that beautiful, powerful displays of God's kingdom happened and I, I just missed them because I didn't have the right disposition of the heart. So then he calls the bridegroom aside and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after people have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. And if you are a first century Jew and you hear that line, you have saved the best wine, the choicest wine, the finest wine until right now, there's an association that triggers in your mind because if you're a Jewish boy by the age of 10 or 11, you've certainly memorized most, if not all, of the entire Old Testament in its original Hebrew language. And you're going to have a very strong association with that trigger word to Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. This is verse 6 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Sounds like a celebration. Sounds like a wedding. But listen to verses 7 through 9. This is the next part of that passage. On this mountain, he, the Lord, will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is our Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in our salvation. And although it's easy for us to miss a first century Jew who would have heard that line of this is choice wine and made that connection to Isaiah 26, understand something very clearly. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, come in human form. Not just a new prophet, not just a new spiritual guru, not just a new enlightened religious teacher, something altogether different entirely. He's here to wipe tears from eyes to remove disgrace, to save and to bring new joy and new life and new hope. And so as this plays out, what we really see is a microcosm of the gospel itself. What looks like certain shame for the couple and for the, uh, and for the master of the banquet is actually turned into greater glory and celebration, but all because of what Jesus has done. Not, not anybody else. It was all just because of what Jesus did. I think that's amazing. But the most cryptic part of this passage is earlier when Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they've run out of wine, and he says, what does this have to do with me? My, my time or my hour has not yet come. Now, I read a lot of what's going on here, and I think the, com the commentaries that do the best job of handling this, this isn't Jesus being rude uh, to his mother. What we're seeing, what we're seeing is a, a very human moment in the life of Jesus. When you're at a wedding, what tends to happen is you tend to think about either your future wedding, you tend to anticipate, I'm going to get married one day, or I'm going to get married again, and like, I want it to be like this. Or, or you're drawn back and you remember when you did get married. And remember, we're at a wedding feast. And Jesus is good, had to have taken a moment to realize, 
Yeah, this is a wedding, but it's a sign because one day there's going to be a wedding of weddings. One day, Revelation 21, 22, the bride is going to be reunited with her bridegroom and heaven is going to descend and, and heaven and earth are going to become one. There's going to be a wedding feast, a wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's going to be the wedding of weddings. And so when Mary kind of interrupts maybe this, this moment, this, this daydream, Jesus is half distracted and he says, my, my hour is not yet come. And whenever Jesus says my hour in John, he only says it about six or seven times. The hour, the hour is going to be fulfilled or the hour is not yet come. It's always referring to his crucifixion, when he's going to die. And I think that's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture because everybody at this wedding, the wedding happens, new, better wine comes out. Everybody's like, this was the best wedding. And people are leaving with a song of praise on their lips and it was a great time. But... Part of the reason why everybody had a great time was because this new wine that Jesus provided didn't cost anybody anything. It was completely free. The party could continue at no cost to anybody. But to facilitate, to make the wedding of weddings happen, a very, very costly wine has to be paid. And that's why at the last Passover, when Jesus holds up this cup of wine, he says, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. And this is poured out for you. Some weddings you celebrate for free, but my wedding has a massive cost. And it's not just choice wine. It's something even more precious, even more pure, with a power even more transformative. It is my actual blood. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. One of his last is turning his blood into the means by which salvation is, is possible. So now can we see, maybe with new eyes, when you get to verse 11, why it says, the disciples saw this glory and they said, I want to put my faith in this guy. I want to be a part of this king and this kingdom. This is beautiful. That's why John frames the whole thing at the very start with the words, on the third day of the week. Important things in Jesus' life tend to happen on the third day. Resurrection, right? New creation. This is a story of new creation. This is a story that invites everyone to realize this is a king who, if you allow him to rule and reign over you, won't oppress and won't dehumanize. He will transform you into your truest self in him. He will lead you into a kind of freedom and grace that nothing in this world can give. He can turn ordinary, dirty water into wine. He can transform us, ordinary, dirty sinners, into something beautiful through his power. That's what it's going to look like. Water to wine as you give Jesus control in your life. And So my call to you, Nelson, would be to recognize that the hour has come. And we've seen Jesus' glory. And I believe that the king has saved the best wine until now. And so let's follow this king into the future together and let's see what miracles he has in store for us. Let's pray. God, your text is a fearsome and beautiful thing. Would you teach us to, to be in it, to be shaped by it, to be formed by it, by your spirit, God. Empower us to see you in the text. 
God, take what is ordinary within all of our lives and all of our hearts within this community. We invite you to touch it and to do something extraordinary through it. We want to be a people that represents you and your kingdom well. Not just telling people, but showing them as the miracle of new creation and new birth takes root and overflows from our life and heart. Bless us and empower us to that task, God. In Jesus' name, amen.